Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, I feel kind of bad for you because I know for a fact you recorded an episode of your other podcast like last night, so you're you're doing two in a row here. Yeah. Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate the concern, buddy, but I'm uh, I'm doing fine. I I got a nap in between those, and by a nap I mean like a full night's sleep. So I know several other podcasts who like will do like three hours in a row just block off an entire afternoon and like binge record a couple of episodes and it always sounds kind of awful but no yeah i'm, I'm not gonna lie i you know what i could probably do that if this was like a scripted podcast where i was just talking sure. in and was and sent it off to somebody else to edit like effects into it like like, I listen to Disgraceland every week, which is, like, a, it's the only true crime podcast I listen to, and it's purely because it's all stories about musicians. It's a great podcast. Highly recommend it. But every episode is, like, one dude talking. He wrote a script. The script is, like, kind of interactively, like, it, it, it tells this story, um, but there's also music drops and sound effects that are clearly edited in after the fact. And they do it as, like, two seasons a year. And it's very clear that, like, there's the studio time where this dude has come in and recorded everything. And then there's the edit time where his editing people have done all the done all the other stuff. And, like, I could probably do that. But I don't know about you. I finish up these conversations and I'm tired by the end <laughs> of it. Like... Like, not to say, not to call you exhausting, you're lovely and I can talk to you for hours, but to talk to you in the context of the podcast, like engaging with notes right. and being on and trying to be funny and then failing to be funny. So I try harder to be funny and this giant effervescent spiral where I'm just attempting and failing to be funny over and over and over again uh -huh. because I need all of you to think that I'm intelligent and humorous or else I'm not worthwhile. I need to go back to therapy, Andy. Uh, I was going to say, buddy, like, I, I think you're funny. Oh, <laughs> My laughs you. are genuine. <laughs> it's a running gag between me and Stephanie that if she ever wants to get under my skin, she'll just, like, deadpan her face. Like, just completely blank, look me dead in the eye and go, Alex, you're not funny. And it wrecks me every time. Cool, 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 cool. Glad to know <laughs> your your wife can weaponize something like that on you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's she always reassures me afterwards that she's just messing with me. Yeah. It's just, you know, not a whole I got a thick I I've got a very, very like thick shell, but my like one hole in my armor, like my Smaug armor, is the funny button. Like, did I do that reference right, Andy? Yes, yes, in fact, you did. Okay, cool. I'm very bitchin'. happy with like, you. Yeah, yeah, that's my, it's, it's, it's the funny thing. Like, you can call me stupid, I know I'm not stupid. You can call me an asshole, I know I'm probably the kindest person you've ever met. You call me not funny. Ugh. <sighs> I toyed with the idea of being a stand-up comic for 
about two weeks. It was back in college. I was doing improv. I was going to say, of course you did. You were an improv kid, right. motherfucker. Yeah. I was doing improv. Every improv kid toys with that. <laughs> Indeed. I was doing improv. I was doing sketch comedy. All the other people in that group were also doing stand-up. And so naturally, I was like, what if I did stand-up? And then, like, I ran some bits past Mariah, and a lot of it was toyed around like, here's why relationships are weird and here's the things that are not okay about mine and she was like yeah you're not fucking doing this and i was like yeah i'm not (laughs) that's fair i just i remember being in middle school i had to do a i remember we had a like a decades project in my seventh grade class where everyone got assigned like an era of history from our textbook And we had to find a creative way to present about it. And me and the people I was working with decided we wanted to do a talent show for our period, which was like the pre-Vietnam era. So I went up and I did a like three minute stand up routine as JFK. (laughs) And I like I like dressed up. I did my hair the certain way. I, w- I went up and I did the Boston accent, which I haven't practiced in years, but I like honed it. And I actually had people laughing. Like, I actually was decent at it. And I would, and like, I was like, this, I recognized then, I was like, this is not good reinforcement to give me right now. This is not a good plan. Because if I ever try stand-up comedy, stand-up comedy is a miasma of misery. The thing that I had to learn about, the thing that I learned about stand-up comedy very early from watching interviews with stand-up comics is you necessarily have to hone your bits. And honing your bits means you are going to tell the exact same jokes literally thousands of times to people and you have to make it sound fresh. There's a reason so many stand-up comics sound so depressive. Yeah. And I was like, that sounds miserable. What will I do instead? Oh, I know, performance poetry. Life. Life is like a lie. <laughs> taking a page out of my playbook and just going slightly to the left of the thing. <laughs> it's, I'm sorry. Be Going for performance poetry as opposed to stand-up comedy is legitimately like telling your parents, no, guys, I'm not going to be a... I, it's okay if my dreams don't play out and I don't end up being a rock star. I am instead going to be a leprechaun. Yeah. No, I mean, I was going to say it's like going to college for theater and then at the end of your first semester deciding you're going to transfer over to a radio television degree. I get it. <laughs> I mean, I started off double majoring in theater and English and then decided, okay, I'm going to drop theater to a minor and just get the English degree because A... Now that I'm no longer a big fish in a small pond and have to deal with competition and prejudice, I don't think I want to be an actor anymore. And B, I can graduate a year early. Yeah, fair. (laughs) Oh, sadness. So speaking of performance poetry. Oh, hey, nice segue. I didn't even intend that. You got to latch on to it when you see it. (laughs) 
Uh, you wanna you wanna explain to the people what we're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So this is love hate relationship, and what we do on love hate relationship is one of us always brings a love, then the other person brings up a topic that they hate, and then we try to take your relationship questions and give our perfectly unqualified advice. And this week, Alex has the love, and so once again, speaking of performance poetry, Alex. I mean, yes. So. Andy, I normally open these by asking you a question, and the idea of the question is it gives me this kind of radio labby, like, in-through-the-outdoor kind of way to introduce our topic. And I have decided to forego that this time. And, uh, spoilers, I'm going to be talking about a poet today, and I am going to do, uh, the, the one thing that I know for a fact is just like guaranteed to make mixed company groan when you're at a party or some kind of gathering. I'm going to read a poem. So if you will indulge me. Abode with Burning City by Ocean Viong. South Vietnam, April 29, 1975, Armed Forces Radio played Irving Berlin's White Christmas as a code to begin Operation Frequent Wind, the ultimate evacuation of American civilians and Vietnamese refugees by helicopter during the fall of Saigon. Milkflower petals on the street, like pieces of a girl's dress. May your days be merry and bright. He fills a teacup with champagne, brings it to her lips. Open, he says. She opens. Outside, a soldier spits out his cigarette as footsteps fill the square like stones fallen from the sky. May all your Christmases be white as the traffic guard unstraps his holster, his hand running the hem of her white dress, his black eyes, her black hair, a single candle, their shadows, two wicks. A military truck speeds through the intersection, the sound of children shrieking inside, a bicycle hurled through a store window. When the dust rises, a black dog lies in the road, panting its hind legs crushed into the shine of a white Christmas. On the nightstand, a sprig of magnolia expands like a secret heard for the first time. The treetops glisten and children listen. The chief of police, face down in a pool of Coca-Cola, a palm-sized photo of his father soaking beside his left ear, the song moving through the city like a widow, a white, a white. I'm dreaming of a curtain of snow falling from her shoulders, snow crackling against the window, snow shredded with gunfire, red sky, snow on the tanks rolling over the city walls, a helicopter lifting the living just out of reach, 
The city so white it is ready for ink. The radio saying run, run, run. Milk flower petals on a black dog like pieces of a girl's dress. May your days be merry and bright. She is saying something neither of them can hear. The hotel rocks beneath them, the bed a field of ice cracking. Don't worry, he says, as the first bomb brightens their faces. My brothers have won the war, and tomorrow the lights go out. I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming, to hear sleigh bells in the snow, in the square below, a nun on fire, runs silently toward her god. Open, he says. She opens. How you feeling, Andy? Ooh, boy. <clears throat> Not happy. <laughs> uh, that's a reaction I've heard. Um, so for reference, the reason I wanted to do that was because um, that poem, Abode with Burning City, was published back in, I think, 2014. And the poet, Ocean Viong, who I'm going to be talking about today, um, I'd never heard of the guy, ever. Like, I, I didn't know anything about him, didn't know his name. Uh, when I was in graduate school, me and three of my poetry friends, we piled into a car and drove up the Jersey Turnpike to Princeton to go see a reading of all of these fantastic writers and poets. Um, there was some conference reading that was happening and it was free and we were like, yo, let's fucking go. Like, We were somewhere around Barstow on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. This person's reading and this person's reading and a whole bunch of other people we never heard of. And most of the poets there read like two, three poems each. This skinny little Asian kid named Ocean goes up there and reads that poem, only that poem, hmm. and the entire auditorium is silent. I'm weeping at the end of that poem. It affected me so much. Sure. That was my introduction to Ocean Viong. So I wanted to, I could not recreate it. His his reading is so perfect um and and it was such a unique experience but i wanted to see how close i could get so i appreciate your indulging me andrew no i mean i was excited you know you in the notes specifically said hey i'm gonna read this please don't read it because i want your genuine reaction and i mean it's it is stunning it, it's stunning in a way that an audio medium I think doesn't do my, my reaction justice. It, I have always enjoyed terribly affecting poetry. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I have Mariah has been reading our lady of the ruins by Tracy Brimnall. And I love her. It has been phenomenal. She's been reading the poems out to me that, that this piece by ocean young is so, powerfully like the imagery is so powerful and, and the the way he dances around 
like like what I got from it is you know the 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 rape of a person juxtaposed with the rape of a city juxtaposed with the rape of the concept of of American freedom like blending all these things together using using snow as this hard packed blanket of of bad silence it's it, it, no it's beautiful like trust me it was more than an indulgence i'm i'm very happy you read this and i want to know more about this guy yeah absolutely and i'm happy to tell you so um just to give some juxtaposition or just juxtaposition just to give some exposition um couple of brief bio things uh ocean viong is a poet, novelist, and essayist of Vietnamese-American descent. Uh, His debut full-length of poetry, in which that poem appears, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, uh, was released in 2016. And it's one of the very, like, I'm a poet, I read poetry, most poetry books don't get second printings. Mm. This one absolutely got a second printing this one has gotten multiple printings it's it's one of the very few collections of poetry i can think of that have come out recently and isn't by billy collins that has gotten multiple printings so if you know who billy collins is that's meaningful (laughs) uh his debut novel on earth were briefly gorgeous was released in 2019 and it is an absolute masterwork like it is an incredible book He himself was born in Ho Chi Minh City in 1988, so he's a year older than me, uh, and he was brought to the U.S. as a refugee when he was only two. His grandparents were a white American soldier and a Vietnamese woman who were separated by the war. Uh, His mother and her siblings were separated as children uh, as a result of that same war. There's actually a very touching story he's told in interviews about how His grandmother separated her children in an orphanage so that their odds were better of surviving. Um, And they they ultimately fled because it was kind of his mother was kind of outed for being mixed race. Mm. And under Vietnamese law at the time, that made it illegal for her to work. So that's why they fled. Um, He has an MFA from NYU, which was where I wanted to get my MFA. But, you know. No salt. Uh, he He's won a ridiculous number of awards, including a MacArthur Genius Grant. He's published in the most prestigious journals around. He teaches at UMass Amherst, is openly gay, semi-openly kinky, a practicing Zen Buddhist, and uh, is, in my opinion, one of the finest living writers working today. And that was important for me to bring him up here because, you know, we've talked about directors Sure. Uh, on this show, we've talked about musicians. Um, we've talked a little bit about writers. Uh, and it was really important for me the first time I brought up, you know, a poet is I, I can talk about dead poets I love all day long. But it was really important for me to spotlight a living writer because a lot of the time we're will I think we're inclined to talk about writers who either have already made their money uh, or who are dead. And here I've got someone who I don't think he's doing poorly, like homie's tenure track and at UMass Amherst. Sure. But I do think that it is important to highlight the work of someone who, I mean, dude is 31. 
he has had incredible success in that amount of time, but he's only got two books out and a couple of chat books. Like he's still very much in the early parts of his career. And I wanted to show some support to that. And, and so it seems, it seems to me, you answered a question I had. So ocean young is a capital P poet. You would, you would say, cause you, you called him a writer, but, um, I mean, I mean, he has of his. He's released two chapbooks of poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's released one full-length poetry collection. I came to know him as a poet. Got it. O- only this last year did he release a novel. I see. So, okay. so he is also a novelist. He's also published several essays. He hasn't published a collection of essays yet, but that's why I introduced him as a poet, novelist, and essayist. Okay. The best way to characterize him is as a writer, but in my in my head, he is so much a poet. Like even his novel is incredibly poetic. That that gift for imagery that was in that that poem I read you, that is all through this novel. I have both his novel and his poetry collection in front of me right now. And I've read them both. And like I could turn to any page in this novel. And you might not know what's going on, but he he has that same If you were to analyze this novel from a sheer plot standpoint, not a lot happens. It's it's written as like a a letter from a son to his mother. So it's an epistolary novel, but it's basically just this son saying, "Here's all these things about you that created me and here's the story here's these stories about me and let's talk about the family and it's written as a long letter but it's so dense with that kind of imagery and that kind of poetic language not a lot of events it's very episodic goes through different things um but yeah it's it's a very very poetic novel so i think poet for him primarily but that might just be me I gotcha. And, and the other point I was going to make, it it seems like this is a little bit of a quality over quantity just because he hasn't released that much yet. And, and I mean that as a, a mark of praise for him to be in the position he is as comparatively young as he is like this, this I'm, I'm very interested and excited is, is my point of all this. Yeah. I just, there's a lot about him. A lot of it is the work. I am very much... You're, you're right, quality over quantity. That's a good way to put it because I, I, I don't know how a person is this good this young. I really don't. Like, it's it's prodigy levels at a certain le- at a certain point. Um, but his... And, and for someone this young, there, there are people who don't publish their first book until they're in their 40s mm-hmm. or 50s. I've known those writers. I read those writers. I love those writers. They're fantastic. This kid came out with his first book before he was 30. Got a second book out then as well. Um, And they are... The poetry world, the literary world, is very small. And it is very hard for people to really blow that world up. And I can only think of a handful of people who have really shaken it 
the way that Ocean Vuong has. And some of them have done it in more books. Um, you're familiar with ta Coates, right? Yes. I'm familiar okay, with so, his comic book work. There you go. So Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, started off, um, he actually was a student of poetry, though as far as I know, he's never published any books of poetry. His first publications were as an opinion writer. Like he basically was, he had a blog that he was just running that got a lot of attention and based on how much attention his blog got, he got hired on to write opinions for The Atlantic. From there, he has written a couple of, like, memoir... He's written a memoir or two. He's written... He's published a few books of essays. And then, very recently, in the last few years, he got a gig with Marvel writing Black Panther. And just this year, released his first novel. He is, I think... Not quite 40. I think he's in his, like, mid to late 30s. And he is someone who I would point to as, like, having shaken things up in the literary world. But he hasn't published that much. He's published more than Ocean Beyond, but he hasn't had the output of, you know, a Christopher Hitchens, for instance, Mm. who was another public intellectual who did a lot, but Christopher Hitchens published like he'd publish a book every two years or once a year. He'd do like a short book or something that happened all the time. Now, I mean, I imagine this took a long time to do. I don't think books like this fall out of someone's head. No. And I mean, and, it's, it's interesting for me because literary publishing is a world that I am just not at all familiar with and i i bless you child i I know you to be i know your wife to be honestly like through the lens of your guys's twitter is really the only viewpoint i get into the world at all and you know i sit here and think about how the dead poets the greats the, the the famous ones like you've got the hindsight of their entire body of work to mess around with so then to talk about somebody who is present and in the moment and you know maybe not fresh in their career but but certainly you would imagine ocean vong has a lot of stuff in the future um to to compare these two things it it makes more sense that it's a harder process no I i don't think it's either it's i don't think it's easy either by any means yeah. And I mean, so first book came out 2016, second book came out 2019. Every three years, if he, even if he releases every three years, he's only 31. He's got a nice long career ahead of him, I think. Sure. And if he keeps up this level, I just, I'm astounded with him. I really am. He's He might be my favorite. He's definitely my favorite um younger poet right now um i'm i'm actually hard pressed to think of too many people i would put above him uh at least not ones who are his as young as he is but i read living writers i read new poets (laughs) hell i've read that tracy brimhall book you were talking about i've read that it's fantastic and i love her and she's she's amazing um 
there's just something about this kid, this this dude who every time I read anything he comes out with, when he comes out with a poem, I, I don't follow the New Yorker. I used to read the New Yorker. I don't anymore because, frankly, it, I don't think it's worth it. Um, but when he releases a poem in the New Yorker, I read that poem. I share that poem. Like, if he's attached to anything, I stand up and I pay attention because something about the delicacy of his work. He is a craftsman, but it's still so visceral. I can read a well-crafted poem. Hell, the other day I was standing in my hallway of my apartment where uh, Stephanie has put together this lovely shadow box of memorabilia from our wedding, including the two poems that we wrote, because we wrote poems to each other to read at our wedding. And I was looking over my poem and it was very, very well crafted. I worked really hard on that. It was a Spenserian sonnet. Um, and I don't write a lot of form poetry anymore. I did, but I'm sitting here going like, this is well crafted. This is the height of my craft. But if I set it next to something like Ocean Vuong, I go, well, compared to that, it's bloodless. Ocean Vuong has, n- I've never read a bloodless poem by this guy. I've never read a bloodless sentence from him. Every one of them pulse with life. And that's amazing to me. I I wanted to start with truth and end with art. I love it, man. No, and I, I, I think it is great to talk about modern contemporary figures, people who are this is this is one of the points of the show like you know it's yeah yeah, we want to talk about the obvious greats that people know we're going to talk about hunter s thompson and like tolkien and and the 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 people that i'm sure hundreds if not thousands of other people are fans of but i really like when we take a relatively unknown figure and teach each other about it and, and hopefully teach, you know, you guys, the listeners about it, because I'm sitting here being like, okay, I think I want to read on earth. We're briefly gorgeous now. Like I, I'm, I'm hooked. I'm interested. Absolutely. And I'm, and if I can encourage that, like if I can encourage people to pick up and read something, I'm going to link to a with burning city in our show notes but um, a lot of his poetry is available online. You just you just Google his name and poems. You'll find his stuff in the New Yorker. You'll find his stuff on poetry.com in various journals where it's published. Even if you don't buy the books, I highly recommend. Just look it over. Um, his poetry is dense and does take a little bit of buy-in, but I really think it's worth it. And if you're more a prose type, he has a novel. And I recommend that, too. Like, if you want to read On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, I will warn you ahead of time. It is very dense. Um, If you're a plot-based reader, you might find it boring. Mm. But if you're interested in the music of it, in, like, just the lingual beauty that can be accomplished, I highly recommend it. All right. Well, absolutely. I, I, I had a question, but I don't want to totally derail this. You you made a a point of saying that he is seminally semi openly kinky. (laughs) What the hell does that mean? 
Um, so as I've read interviews with him, I've read his pieces. He, I, I have yet to read anything where he explicitly says, I've yet to read anything where he explicitly says like, yes, I'm kinky. Yes, me and my partner engage in BDSM. That said, if you go to Ocean Viong's Instagram page, <laughs> at least I hope this is still up. I think it was like a, I think it was like a Valentine's Day, like maybe last year or something like that. He posted a photo of himself, um, in a gimp mask, and tied up and shirtless, and said something and posted something on it that was like like kink visibility or something like that oh. and it was the only indication i have ever seen of him talking about this in any and he didn't talk about it he literally just posted the photo with like a little caption so that's why i say semi openly kinky well, I gotcha. And and for anyone curious, you go to Ocean Young's Instagram. It is definitely still there. <laughs> I, I'm nothing I'm wrong with it now, actually. Yeah, no, I'm I'm looking for it. I'm, oh, there it is. Yep. Sure, love. He's he's a little skinny for my taste, but he's pretty. <laughs> but yeah, like he's he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't center it. He doesn't like. Don't get me wrong. He writes poems. He writes like some graphically sexual queer poems. Um, as far as I've seen, there's definitely mention of. How do I put this? There's allusions to certain kinky dynamics, but he has never I've never read anything from him where he's like, yeah. And then I get dragged around by the collar and spanked on the ass. But. There is one Instagram post that is still up. Yeah. All right. So uh, you you had my attention, but now you have my interest. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I just want to close before we move on to your section. Sure. I just want to close out by pointing out one thing beyond the work, beyond anything else. Um, hey, guys, Alex is going to get political again. I... <sighs> I think that there's a legitimate argument to be had that Ocean Viong, as as an entity and in terms of his work, is like the face of what U.S. ideals should be. Like, he is a queer, intelligent fucking refugee who can cite 19th century English literature, which is what he got his B.A. in, like it's his own address but he still writes with a level of mastery of the English language that is baffling. A, given his age. B, by the way, this motherfucker learned to read at 11. Like, his formal education started late. He's the first of his family to be able to read like this, to be able to write like this. He learned to read at 11, and he's writing far and beyond the capabilities of... Whoever in fucking academia you want to put up right now. Every interview I've read with him, he has a marked empathy. He he finds ways to just kind of crack your heart open and 
make you feel something. He does it in his work. And he is... He's he's young, gay, brilliant, and beyond any... What any of us... He is the opposite of the shitty, like, 30-year-old cis white dude with a trust fund who thinks he's the next fucking Ernest Hemingway when really he's just a trash fuck pile <laughs> who gets by on just whatever kind reinforcement he's gotten from people who are afraid to lose his parents' money. Like, this guy's success, Ocean Vuong's success, Ocean Vuong's abilities are so earned and so potent and so meaningful to me. I, I, I don't... There are comparable things between his and my biographies not in a long sense but i see so much of like what i struggle to articulate in his work and in his words and that and in his biography and that's so poignant to me so what i'm saying is ocean viong is the anti donald trump supporter and I think for that reason alone, you should buy all of his books and read everything he puts out. Shut up and take my money. Mm, amen. That's where I'm closing. <laughs> amen. Can't get higher praise than that, in my opinion, right now. Hell yes. Shall we move on? Indeed, we speaking shall. Of, speaking of, um, well, that. Speaking of the uh, Donald Trump-related items. Yes. You want to talk about billionaires? Speaking of despicable rich people. <laughs> Go on. So today I'm I'm getting a little niche, and my hate that I'm bringing to the table um, is Larry Ellison, who is the CEO of Oracle, which is a tech company. And mm. I definitely think this is niche because here, here's here's how I'm gonna uh, prime the topic today. I don't know if Larry Ellison falls into the same category as your Jeff Bezos or your Elon Musk or your Bill Gates. But I do suspect that Ellison is very much more in the 1% quote unquote shadow controlling government of the world. If you believe in such things. Um, okay. This is, not a, a a great man and and for anybody who is unfamiliar i will let wikipedia introduce lawrence joseph ellison was born august 17th 1944 and is an american businessman entrepreneur and philanthropist who is a co-founder and the executive chairman and chief technology officer of Oracle Corporation. As of October 2019, he was listed in Forbes magazine as the fourth wealthiest person in the United States and the sixth wealthiest person in the world, with a fortune of 69.1 billion increase. Nice point one. Yeah, well, and that's the one time I'm not going to say nice because he doesn't get it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Please continue. Um, which was an increase from 54.5 billion in 2018. So some simple math. Um, this man made 15 billion dollars last year. So so one. So just just a general for my hate. There are no good billionaires. Period. I've said it before sure. on this podcast. Eat the rich. And I think we've talked about how that's not necessarily a helpful thing to say, but. <laughs> 
I mean, that's just my hang-up. I mean, you say whatever you like, but that's that's my thing. Fair enough. And so normally, like, like this is going to get a little bit of behind the bastard Z talking about a bad person. But, you know, last time we kind of zoned in on a man like this for a hate, I believe it was uh, L. Ron Hubbard. And we, mm-hmm. we went to great lengths to lay out a timeline and, and do a biography and like, and talk about why he was a bad person through like the lens of his life. I'm not necessarily going to do that today. What I do plan on doing is just listing some facts. And if at any point you want to stop and we break it down, um, we can totally go ahead and do that. But without further ado, here are some things that are hundred percent true about Larry Ellison. He owns the Golden State Warriors. Okay. He also owns the Hawaiian island of Lanai. In 2012, Larry Ellison bought 98% of the island and started talking about building a luxury resort as well as creating a renewable, sustainable, natural energy source to power the island. Only one of these things happened. So let's be clear. Buying your own island is the first step towards being a Bond villain. Yes. Mr. Fat has just resigned. I'm the new chairman of the board. Yeah, and, yes. and keep track of those. <laughs> okay. But and and real quick, like my thing is like it's not even some some like island in the Caribbean or or French Polynesia. It is he the man owns part of a state. That is just sure. his. Sure. So, moving on, uh, Larry Ellison was hypercritical of NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, and I believe his quote was something along the lines of, you know, nobody that Snowden has gone on to attack uh, has done anything, which, okay. Uh, Please continue. Yeah. Uh, Larry Ellison is friends with Marco Rubio and was the primary backer of Rubio's 2016 election campaign. Sucking my teeth. <laughs> I I've, I should do a hate on Marco Rubio. Uh, my favorite thing to do, one of my favorite things to do when I'm drunk on Twitter is to uh, tell Marco Rubio that he's a race traitor. Uh, I've seen you do this. Yes. Yeah, it's it's, it's something of a hobby. Uh, please continue. Um, okay, so um, to settle an insider trading lawsuit arising from his selling nearly $1 billion of Oracle stock, a court allowed Ellison to donate $100 billion to his own charitable foundation without admitting wrongdoing. $100 million. A hundred. So, so to to just make this perfectly clear, the man sells a billion dollars, and then is allowed as his punishment to give a hundred million dollars, which I'm not great at math. I don't want to sit. I'm doing it now. I mean, it's what? It's a tenth. Is it even a tenth? I mean, it's a tenth of a billion. But right now, I'm seeing what percentage that is of his 54.5 billion that you had quoted earlier. Sure. 54.5. Guys, this is so many fucking zeros. 
Well, let's just let's keep it simple. So the man, the man sells a billion. Okay, go ahead. Andy, it is one point eight percent of his fortune. Indeed. One point eight percent. That's 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 for context, if you make ten thousand dollars a year, that's a hundred and eighty three bucks. Yeah. So cool, 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 cool. Man, man sells, uh, man, man makes a bunch of money selling shit, selling more shit than he's allowed to sell. And then his punishment is give a near infinitesimal fraction of that money to a charity he owns. Yep. Which, I mean, that's not like that's not a step to being a James Bond villain, but that is a a step of being just a villain in human history. Yeah, basically. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but speaking that's... of Bond villains, moving on to my next point, Larry Ellison owns a functioning Russian MiG fighter jet <laughs> that the USA refuses to let him bring into the country. <laughs> oh, I don't know why that makes me laugh. <laughs> It's honestly it's terrifying. Stupid, Andrew. <laughs> it's stupid. It's it's honestly like that sounds like a Richie Rich B plot. That sounds like Richie Rich was like, I bought this large fighter jet because it was cool, but this stupid customs won't let me bring it into the country. So I have to fly on my private jet to go fly my other private jet in another country. And like, I'm sure his argument is that it's not armed, but I'm also sure that's just a function of, yeah, we didn't put bullets in it. Like, like we didn't arm the missiles, but you could still arm missiles to this thing if you wanted. Just saying. I mean, for like this, this shows where my faith is in the U S government. The fact that there's finally a line of like, no, Mr. Ellison, you cannot bring a personal, like, weapon of death into our country that is just yours and you can do whatever the hell you want with. That is finally the line. I'm just glad there's a line, I guess. I hope our little game isn't causing you to perspire. Uh, I guess. Yeah. Um, you got a couple more here. I got a couple more. Let's keep going. In, in 2000, or no, sorry. Um the character of Gavin Belson from the show Silicon Valley, who is ostensibly the show's villain is based in part on Larry Ellison. Are you familiar at all with Silicon Valley, Alex? I'm really not. I've seen like YouTube clips of various like episodes. I know Kamal Nanjiani's on it and I've seen like compilation of Kamal Nanjiani on Silicon Valley kind of things, but I've never actually watched the show. I get you. To be fair, I really haven't either. I I know who the character Gavin is. I have seen one episode and it is not the first episode. That episode I watched, like I will say um, the, there was, there was a bit where, the character Jared, who's played by Zach Woods, who people might remember from The Office or In the Loop, um, he he makes this offhanded remark about how his parents never got him a birth certificate. Yeah, he makes this offhanded comment about how his parents never got him a birth certificate, mm-hmm. and it was the single hardest I have laughed in years. So, <laughs> what? 
I don't know. It was just so funny. I guess you had to be there and watching the episode. Point is, uh, the bad guy of a show is based off Larry Ellison. And I didn't put this in the okay. notes, but also when they were writing the first Iron Man and they were like, okay, we need to make Tony Stark in the beginning of the movie seem like the most immoral, selfish asshole business owner. Hey, hey, yeah, let's also base him on Larry Ellison. So... <laughs> Okay, and, I'm into and, it. I'm into you it. You know, I don't. I don't think I've sent you a picture of the man, but if you look him up, he looks like Robert Downey Jr. and Mickey Rourke had an awful love child. I hate that I typed the word Larry into <laughs> Wikipedia, and it it's the first. Ew! Look at him! <laughs> look at his face! Look at his gross goatee! Oh, <laughs> he looks like something Tony Robbins shat. Yeah. All right. Ah, that was delightful. Um, r- wrapping up. In 2006, Forbes called Larry Ellison the most wealthy Californian. Period. No other qualifier. <laughs> yeah, okay. And this may have had to do something, and this is where I get into the twist of, of why I personally hate this fucker. Uh, this may have had to do... This may have had to do with the fact that in 2005, uh, Larry Ellison's company, Oracle, acquired another tech company called PeopleSoft and laid Mm -hmm. off 6,000 employees, including my dad. Uh, Mm -hmm. This led to us leaving Colorado, uh, two moves in three years. And I mean, I've never like broken it down with him because my dad isn't this kind of guy, but I'm almost positive it left him with this like deep depression that he's never really shaken. So yeah. Um, Larry Ellison, as far as I can tell, hasn't done anything evil that we know of yet, but I argue and I, I posit to you, Alex, that essentially owning a private Island Russian fighter planes and a company that it's stated thesis, like the reason Oracle exists is to make Larry Ellison money. If everyone else makes some money along the way, cool. But the company exists to make money is some James Bond villain shit. If you've been playing along, you know, I have my own personal grudge against Larry and, and I can, I can sit here and reflect that like life is a river technically without this man, I may never have moved to Florida. I may never have met my wife. I may never have met you or any of my other friends. And so like it, it, I was talking about this with Mo and she was like, I don't know if this is necessarily a good hate, especially if you're going to make that point. No, I can still hate this fucking guy. Um, yeah, but be that as it may. And, and, in a way he may be responsible for, for where I am in life, both good and bad. Like I think there's still enough here to justify me saying I would not piss on this man's gums. If his teeth were on fire, though, I may be inclined to shit into his open mouth. (laughs) The amount of control you have over your bodily functions (laughs) amazes me. It's a gift. It's my superpower. I, I just, Okay, so the question you're positing to me is basically, um, 
even though he hasn't done like like as far as far as I know, um and I knew who Larry Ellison was before this segment. I didn't know much of anything about him, but I knew who he was. I was familiar with the name. Um he hasn't done anything like he hasn't Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, he's as far as any of us as know. As far as we can tell, he wasn't friends with Jeremy Epstein. He he hasn't like Jeff Jeffrey Epstein. Isn't that his name? Jeffrey Epstein. You said Jeremy Epstein. I'm pretty sure Jeremy oh. Epstein is an accountant in Queens. <laughs> My apologies, Jeremy. Yes, I do mean Jeffrey. Yeah. Um, yeah. As far as I know, he's not either. Um, and yes, okay, you have a personal attachment to this. And I actually don't think that invalidates anything. Um, I, I looked something up while you were talking, um, specifically when you started and you were mm. like, oh, he made $15 billion in one year. Sure. Andrew, that's the GDP of Jamaica. Sure. A little bit more than the GDP of Jamaica. Which I know a lot of people don't think, oh, Jamaica, big, rich country. But, like, Jamaica does well for itself, yeah, believe it they or got, not. They got the tourism. Yeah, and this guy's got more than, made more than the GDP of Jamaica in one year. Um, I think a lot of, I think there are a lot of very well-meaning, um, well-meaning liberals who don't understand why a lot of us, especially people our age and as left as um, certainly I am and I believe you are. I think I'm more left than you, but I think you're left of like your run-of-the-mill Democrat. Yeah. Um, why a lot of us say billionaires should not exist. Why a lot of us say things like it is immoral for billionaires to exist, that it is impossible to become a billionaire without theft and that's a very long and complicated explanation but i could basically summarize it as when you comprehend scale when you comprehend the scale of an individual person being able to make these little adjustments larry ellison wanted for nothing when he and his people made the decision to acquire a company and lay off 6,000 people. He had nothing in his life that he could want that he didn't already have. He had nothing that he needed that he could not provide. I know he's been married several times. I don't know if he has any children, but if he does, his children, this is all before that people soft gig his children and his children's children and his children's children's children could be set for life based on what he had in that moment and he still moved forward with making a an acquisition and laying off people including your father that had a lifelong consequence, and he will never know who your father is. Yeah. He will never know who you are. And at the end of the day, what was accomplished from that? He made more money. He made more money largely for more rich people. The job creator myth is a myth, especially in the age of automation. So when you tell me that you want to single out 
just like I wanted to single out a poet and a writer that I think a lot of people haven't heard of and I think they should, I think in the wake of, I think in the Donald Trump era, I think in the did Bill Gates ride on Jeffrey Epstein's plane era, I think in the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk can't fucking do any good for people even though there's this weird cult of personality around them. I think in the I think in the space where this vacuum of the more famous and visibly egregious billionaires are sucking up so much of our like Twitter criticism and our rage, I think it's important to point out this dude who has not done who is not an asshole like Elon Musk is an asshole. Who is not as rich as Jeff Bezos, who has not committed the heinous acts of a lot of other very, very rich people, to point him out and go, look, just because he hasn't done this thing and hasn't done A, B, and C does not mean that his existence as a person collecting this much wealth and creating this vacuum of scarcity and affecting all of these lives and families and existences with what amounts to him a a couple of digits in a bank account. What the fuck is the difference between $50 billion and $70 billion, Andy, effectively speaking? What is the difference to that person who has it? You're never going to spend that. Right. You're never going to be able to spend that. And I really do think that's if, what it boils down to, like just on a on a scale level, like like what's the difference between 5 billion dollars and 70 billion dollars? This man could spend less than 10% of his net worth and do a hell of a lot of good in the world. He could he could put it to, you know, solving world hunger or like helping third world countries become something better than third world country, better than third world countries. This man and Bezos and Musk, like Bill Gates dedicated most of his fortune to curing malaria. That is a thing he did for the world. All these other people could be doing anything to bring us closer to that Star Trek future I so desperately wanted back when I was a kid and they don't instead they buy private islands and make resorts and add you know uh, round round up a a zero to their net worth every couple of years like yeah yeah I mean, a study came out a little while ago that said the cost of the cost of a basically um, not fixing climate change, but adequately addressing climate change in a way that won't destroy the world. The total price tag on that, based on the research done, I think by a UN commission, was three hundred billion dollars. Larry Ellison could give a fifth of that. He could give $60 billion towards that fight. And his lifestyle would not change remotely. He would still have more than $9 billion in the bank. He would see no difference in the way that he lives his life. And he could get us a fifth of the way to saving the entire world. 
and you'd think with all these people, you know, they talk about the cult personality. They want to be like remembered. You would think that the, the, the fact of like, you could go down as one of the saviors of the human race would be enough of an ego trip for these fucking people. And it's not, um, also just real quick. This is a little salt in my wound. Um, Larry, Larry Ellison has two children, David and Megan, uh, and they are both film producers. Megan Ellison created Annapurna pictures, which created like zero dark 30 and the phantom thread. And she's won a bunch of Oscars for that. And David Ellison, uh, created Skydance media who makes like the mission impossible films and is making the next top gun. And I'm sad. <laughs> I'm so fucking angry. I'm so Andy. fucking angry. These fuckers, their dad laid off my dad. These fuckers are like film producers living your dream. Andrew. They're living your dream. They literally are. I did not fucking know this until 10 minutes ago. <laughs> And like, it feels uh, that's like the, the most shallow thing to get upset about, but that is some salt in the wound, man. It's always been me, the author of all your pain. Ugh. I can't. So I can't. there are no good billionaires. I, I will stand by that forever. Uh, there, I, I highly doubt there are very good millionaires out there, but like once you get that capital B billion, uh, I don't know, man. I'm never going to make that much money. I'm never going to be within spitting distance of that much money. I'm sure it does stuff to you. It fucks with your head. The the lifestyle cult that you become a part of totally changes your perception. You become detached from true reality. But it's it's like you said, if, if all these guys pooled their resources, I mean, it wouldn't take more than the 10 most wealthy people in the world, not even giving up all of their assets. And we're, we're in a better place. I mean, that is the least optimistic way I can put it. We are in a, a discernibly better place as a planet and they just can't, they just can't and they won't. And it sucks, man. So chew on that listeners. <laughs> and oh, next God. time you cheer for uh golden state warriors, I mean, cheer, cheer for the people cheer for cheer for the team, but just, just know that a complete and utter bastard runs the team. And and I know he's not the complete. No, I know he's not the only complete and utter bastard who has a sports franchise. Once you become rich enough, it's just something you do, but uh, Alex, I'd like to move into our question because it'll put me in a better headspace. <laughs> cool. Um, you did our intro, so shall I read the question? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Uh, this is another relationships.txt question. I'll be linking to it in our show notes, but um, I kind of love it, so I'm really in. All right. My sister and I are in our mid-20s, and my parents are in their mid-50s. All of us live in the same state, just different cities. Due to our work schedules, I don't see my family often. My parents stayed over at my sister's for my birthday. I was going to go over to her place and spend it as a family because it seemed easier that way, and I don't like surprises anyway, so it works out. 
However, yesterday I got a call from my parents saying that they'll come visit me instead and that my sister can't make it. I called her to see what was wrong. Turns out that my parents found my sister's sex toy and had a dramatic episode over it and, de and are demeaning her for owning them. They said it was better if she didn't show up. Basically, the conversation comes down to mom and dad yelled at me for owning a dildo. Sex toys are fairly common and my sister is an adult. At the end of the day, she isn't hurting anyone and now my parents are making a big deal out of nothing. And while I could spend my birthday with my parents and visit my sister some other time, it just isn't the same. I wish I was making this up. Is there any way I can spend my birthday with my whole family and not have them fight over something so stupid? Thank you. <laughs> so, we have to we have to make a name first. We do. I am inclined to go with Janie from Not Another Teen Movie. But I don't know if that is what? too obscure of a reference. That might be. It might be too obscure of a reference. What's what's something about dildos? Um Oh god. What was Oh, what was Jason Biggs' character's name in American Pie? He seems like he would like dildos. No, maybe not. I'm down with Janie if you are. Oh, hold on. Let me let me look it up here. Oh, shit. No. What was Allison Hannigan's character in American Pie? That's what I was going to say. That's what I'm looking up. <laughs> American Pie cast... Michelle Flaherty. This one time at band camp. We weren't supposed to have pillow fights, but we had a pillow fight and it was so much fun. Stuck a flute? My pussy. Excuse me? What? You don't think I know how to get myself off? Yeah, no, I'm there. All right. I'm there. Okay. Hi, Michelle. All right. Hi, Michelle. Fair, how are you? To be fair, I think the sister's the Michelle, but... We're going with Michelle. Yeah, no, it works for me. All right, so, Michelle Flaherty. Hi, how are you? Um, Andy, do you want to start? <laughs> so, I read this question, and I shared it with you just as like a, hey, this is a personal one for me and you as a treat that we can discuss ourselves. And it wound up being our question because on the one hand, it's so good. On the other hand, y'all send us your relationship questions. We enjoy TXT, but we like helping you better. But I, I read this question and overwhelmingly, like my, my thought was you, your parents don't deserve to go to your fucking birthday. Like you need to go hang out with your sister and cut them out of the mix as a like, how could you be so shitty kind of message? And that doesn't answer your question. Is there any way I can spend my birthday with my whole family and not have them fight? I mean, I mean, I think it does. The answer is no, you can't. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. You can't and you shouldn't, honestly. Like, I'm in in 2020, I mean, depending on, on how old Michelle and her sister are, like, these parents grew up in the 80s or 90s. 
and we're sitting here getting freaked out over a sex toy? I don't know. I mean, if your parents are in their mid-50s, they were probably in their mid-20s when American Pie came out, Michelle. Um, I... I'm sorry. Were you done? I don't want to go ahead and I'll, I'll come back to it. (sighs) Okay. So I'm 100% with Andy on this one. The, the fact of the matter is Michelle, your, we use relationships.txt. We don't pull our questions from, am I the asshole, which is another similar account you can find online. In this case, your parents are absolutely the assholes because you're right. Your sister's a fucking adult. It's it's 2020, dude. Like, there is... I understand it being embarrassing. That is completely reasonable. Um, if you were coming at this like your parents have called you and they're very uncomfortable and you don't know what to do. I mean, frankly, the advice would be Here's here are ways to help your parents have a conversation about this so that it's not uncomfortable and they can just move the fuck on. That's not your parents' response, though. It's not discomfort. It's judgment and anger and shittiness. And the fact of the matter is, you don't need to put up with that. You know, our like my advice would be call your parents, tell them um, you're not coming to visit me. Go home. I'm going to go visit my sister. Think about what you've done, mom and dad. Go home and think about what you've done. Admittedly, that would stir up some shit, and I'm sure that's not what you want. Like, you wouldn't be asking, is there any way you can have your whole family together without them all fighting about something so stupid, if it weren't for the fact that you legitimately care about having your parents there for your birthday. And and that's legit. Like, that's real. But frequently, what we come to with these questions is, A, people not asking the right question— and B, people struggle. Pe- Andy, how many of our questions that we get, whether TXT or otherwise, seem to have to do with how do I please everybody all at once? I mean, a fair amount. And, and I get that struggle. Absolutely. But there comes a time when y- you deserve it to yourself to not even try. And I think this is one of those cases. Yeah. And you know, and that's something that I've honestly, I've struggled with that as far as just like, I used to have a bad habit of double booking with friends and family. I used to, yeah, I used to have a terrible habit of just like not being terribly considerate about everything. And when, and when faced with the consequences of that carelessness going, how do I find the way to please everyone as best I can? And there's not, this is not a situation where you can please anyone. So really what you have to do here is make a judgment call. And the judgment call, I think, is have your birthday with the person who's done nothing wrong. And that's your sister. And I'm a big believer. A big believer. We've talked about this before. We're big believers in found family. Like, Andy and I both. We're very big on the family you're born with. Like, you you might have obligations to them, but you are not responsible for their feelings, their happiness, nor are you obligated to, like, kowtow to their whims. If you have people in your blood family with whom you 
can very closely relate and foster a good non-toxic relationship with, absolutely do it. But your parents need to be called on this fucking bullshit because it's fucking bullshit. Yes. And, you know, I've been thinking about it. I think the way to give them the opportunity to grow and, and put the onus on them is really, I mean, say what you told us or, or say what you said in this post about like my sister is an adult. She isn't hurting anyone. Sex toys are not uncommon or something to be shamed. And I'm telling you right now, mom and dad, my sister is going to be at my birthday. If you guys are as well, that is your decision. But if you come, there will be no shaming and no like bringing up this topic. And I mean, you got to stand your ground. I I feel like I, I feel like you want everybody there and that's great. But I also get the sense that Michelle realizes that her sister is absolutely the victim in this scenario and it's important to stand with her. So I agree. I would say put it on put it on them. It is completely up to them whether or not they spend your birthday with you, but they're being complete asshats right now and need to get over that and accept that your sister is perfectly normal and that she is going to be there. Something I learned in therapy is um frequently with certain family dynamics, especially once people leave the kind of home environment, the kind of the, the situation where you all grew up. And, and in a lot of cases for nuclear families, that's when all the kids are out. A lot of people freeze their image of you mm. earlier. And sometimes it's earlier than the point where you moved out or moved away. That their that their just vision of you is codified, and a lot of a lot of siblings, depending on their age dynamics, will freeze their siblings at a certain age. Like, I think in a lot of ways, my sister is still frozen in my head as herself when she was in college, when she was like twenty, twenty one. Like, in a lot of ways, I I still think of my sister that way. I think my sister still thinks of me at a certain age. Probably me. I think, I think honestly, me is like a pissant preteen, like 11, 12 years old. <laughs> and that's something we're working on. And we're getting better and better at acknowledging each other's adulthood. I think parents specifically struggle with seeing the adulthood of their kids. I don't know at what age my parent. I'm frozen in my parents' eyes. I think, honestly... I'm probably frozen in my dad's eyes like just after college and I'm probably frozen in my mom's eyes sometime in high school. That that's just me spitballing. I don't know what age your parents have frozen you and your sister, but your parents seem to be treating this like they found condoms in their like 12-year-old girl's nightstand. <laughs> Which I would understand parents being freaked out at that point cuz that's that's too young. Um, But if your sister's an adult living on her own and owns a dildo, like honestly, I'm proud of your sister. Um, And I think that it's not just about diffusing things with your parents. I think Andy's right. You got to stand your ground, you and your sister together. You both need to be like, mom, dad, we're fucking adults. 
we will do things that you find abhorrent. Guess what? We're going to fuck probably too. Like, we're going to be fucking people. We're going to be like, we are not, you are not obligated to abide by your parents' morality or ethics, and you are not obligated to make them feel comfortable, especially when they are visiting you. You're obligated to be a good host when they're visiting because that's just good manners. But if they disrespect you and they disrespect your sister, they should not be welcome to act that way and not face a consequence. So go spend your birthday with your sister. Tell your parents to go home. Think about what they did. Tell them to maybe start looking at you guys as something other than the children you once were because you're not. And they need to get over that. Anything to add, Andy? No, I think you summed it up beautifully, my man. That's how I like to do. (laughs) So uh, this has been another episode of Love-Hate Relationship. We hope you've enjoyed it and been brightened and angered and um, helped out as best we can. If you have a relationship question, we would love to address it. We keep things totally anonymous unless you don't want that to be the case. We'll come up with a fun nickname for you unless you have one you want to prescribe to yourself. Um, but you can send those relationship questions in to love, hate relationship podcast at gmail.com. We promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple podcast, Google podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even tune in radio. Hey mom. Um, I don't think podcasts were around when I was like 17, when I'm pretty sure I'm frozen for you, but, um, I love you. (laughs) It's better than I was doing at 17 when I was like real shitty. So Yeah. Uh, You can also tweet us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D with your questions and follow us to keep up with new episodes. That's right. You can also find my other podcast, Cult Fiction, where the incomparable Stephanie Johnson and I watch um, trashy old cult movies. The last one was Conan the Barbarian um, at Cult Fiction Cast or just look up Cult Fiction on Twitter or any of those other places Alex just mentioned. You can find the show. You can also find me, Andy Bowell, on Twitter at JoVoCop2113. Yeah, I don't think that Conan episode's coming out for a while because y'all are actually like ahead That's fair. where you're supposed to be. Whereas we're like, meh, meh, meh. how are we going to get this in on time? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yes. Let's try and bank some. Uh, y'all, I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening, y'all. We're um, This puts us slightly ahead and we're going to keep trying to be ahead and we love you. And as always, tell your enemies. Tell your enemies.